The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 165. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Voyager episode, The Gift. And joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well, thank you. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, remember to join the StarQuest fan club by texting StarQuest to 66866. That's StarQuest to 66866. Uh, I also want to encourage you to stick around to the end of the episode. We have a little bit of listener feedback. And I want to take a moment now to tell you about another show that's on the StarQuest Network that you would probably enjoy called The Catholics of Oz. They are geeks like us. They really enjoy sci-fi, Star Trek, and other things. They talk about that. They talk about uh, faith-related topics. They talk about science. It is our uh, three friends from Australia, uh, uh, Lindsay, Lino, and Caroline, and uh, their show is uh, every other week. So double, be sure to check it out, The Catholics of Oz, at sqpn.com slash Oz. All right, but today we are talking about this Voyager episode, The Gift. This is a fourth season episode. We're, we've jumped back again to this is takes place just after the episodes in which Seven of Nine has joined the crew. So, Jimmy, could you give us a, a recap of what happens in this episode? Yeah, so despite the fact it's called The Gift, this episode should have been titled after a line from Groucho Marx and called, Hello, I must be going. (laughs) (laughs) The Voyager has survived its previous encounter with the Borg and Species 8472, but it's got lots of Borg tech merged into it, which is causing problems, and they're having trouble scraping it off. Seven of Nine also has lots of Borg tech merged into her, which is causing problems, but the Doctor is in the process of scraping it off. Janeway convinces Seven to help get rid of the problematic Borg technology in the ship, but Seven is suffering from severe Borg withdrawal and is jonesing for an assimilation fix. (laughs) When the opportunity presents itself, she tries to send a subspace message to the Borg so that she can get back together with the band. At the time, at the same time, all this is happening. Kess's psychic powers are growing off the scale, and soon they are posing a danger to Voyager. To prevent this danger and to allow her to complete her transformation into some kind of super being, Kess takes a shuttlecraft and leaves the show. I mean, the ship. <laughs> As a final gift to Voyager, she throws them ten thousand light years closer to home and safely out of Borg space. So we should never have to worry about encountering the Borg again on this series. <laughs> Until next week. The end. <laughs> the end. <laughs> so a couple interesting uh, facts about this episode. One, it's directed by Anson Williams, who uh, old folks like me will recognize Potsy. as Potsy Weber from Happy Days. Uh, and 
uh, Jerry Ryan at uh, at one at one point talked about how she she had just got off of another show called Dark Skies where she was with Ralph Melth on that. Oh, one. really? Okay. And then she was with Potsy. another Happy Days character. Yes, yep. and then she was like hoping to be with Richie Cunningham at some point. Ron Howard, the director, who yep. you know went on to, that's his bigger uh, fame. Uh, so that, that's pretty fun. Maybe he'll direct a Picard episode with Jerry Ryan, and she'll have the trifecta. The, uh, <laughs> but uh, more pertinent to this uh, series, it's interesting. This was supposed to be the fifth episode of season of the season four, not the second episode. So they were going to draw out the departure of Cass for some reason, and uh, but then they 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 changed gears, and it originally wasn't supposed to be Cass that was leaving. Well, there's a dispute about that. Okay. So what I read was that they were going to get rid of Garrett Wang in order mm-hmm. to make room in the budget for Jerry Ryan. But then he was named one of people's 50 most beautiful people of that year. And they decided that would be bad PR. And so Jennifer Lean uh, was, or Leanne, I, I don't know how her name is, was next. And so that's why she got it. Uh, she's also said in the in interviews that she j- she chose to go because she didn't feel like the character was going anywhere. So maybe that's the other. And the it's also been claimed that the writers felt that her character arc had been played out, and so that's why mm-hmm. she went. I don't see these things as being mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Right. I can see that. I, I if I had to reconstruct what happened, I would guess that. Well, we need to bring in a new character to juice up the ratings, and so we're going to need to lose somebody to make room in the budget. Who would that be? Well, either Kess or or um, Harry or Garrett Wang yeah. or Harry. So it's going to be one of those two, mm-hmm. right? Right. Well, as I was kind of joking beforehand, was the title the gift the fact that the gift that Kess is finally leaving <laughs> leaving the show? <laughs> no, the gift would have been if she took Neelix with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think they made the right choice here. Yeah. Uh, Harry is the more interesting character. I mean, they didn't do, he, they still left him with a lot of unexplored potential, but I, I, as much as, as much as I can like Cass in individual scenes, they just right. wasted this character and all of the plot potential she had. Right. From the beginning. I, and I think part of that was because they, connected her so closely to Neelix and even though they had them split up romantically it was mm-hmm. too late i mean it was she was it was they were a pair and it it just limited what her character could do and then they had this weird like love triangle thing going on throughout her time you know is she going to end up with Neelix or is she going to end up with the doctor as weird as that would be is she going to end up with Tom Paris and it was it, i don't know it, it just felt weird and limiting to the character because it didn't let her, she never was able to stand on her own. She was always right. somebody's appendage. Well, yeah, she has almost no agency. Right. Yeah. And the actress, even though in a human being, you know, I like gentleness and and compassion and stuff, the way the actress played her was just so soft and mm-hmm. that she's she's not coming across as an agent. Right. She's right. she's not making her own decisions and doing stuff and developing as a character. She's just reacting. Yeah, which makes it interesting when this character will come back in a few seasons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is, is a opposite. big mistake. Yeah, that was a big <laughs> mistake. So, uh to talk about this episode too, one of the things I I read about it uh is that they made a conscious decision to change how they talk about the Borg in this episode because in the past 
they've t- they've referred to the Borg more as like a drug, like you, you mentioned, Jimmy, like because it looks mm-hmm. like Seven is in having drug withdrawals, or right. like a cult is another way that they've kind of referred to it. Oh. But but a wolf pack is is kind of more of a positive thing, less not, not so much a negative. Like a, a wolf pack is is I mean, if you're being attacked by a wolf pack, it's not so positive, but a wolf pack internally is supportive we work together we are cooperative we are you know we we are strong together sort of thing and i think Janeway, in fact calls it something like that at one point does she there was a discussion in her ready room with chakotay where she said something along those those lines uh oh it was because annika was raised by raised by wolves essentially is how she kind of referred to yeah. it oh okay <clears throat> so uh, I, I didn't i didn't pick up i'm not sure i don't recall the Borg ever really being discussed in terms of being a wolf pack. I certainly wouldn't view that as their primary characteristic. No. no. And humans actually are a lot more like wolves in that respect. Mm. Right. Although, well, yeah. yeah. And they, I mean, they, they, they I mean, do that's talk, what our families are. It's our pack. Yeah. yeah. Right. And they do talk about in this episode about the, the, the Borg basically being one consciousness that it's, you know, the many, many voices, but it's all one consciousness that works together. It's more a hive than anything. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, well, it, that, that's that's obviously the analogy they go for. And of course, later when they bring the Borg queen over from first contact, that's exactly what they're going for is this is the queen of the hive. Right. Um, the primary conflict the, or the driver of the, of the plot here is that the warp drive is offline because of the Borg technology. And the, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and, and that makes it's so it, it it's it, this is one of the writing flaws in this episode the if that's the primary driver we need to have an approaching borg menace yeah mm-hmm. and we don't we know yeah maybe the borg will show up and menace us but we have no nothing building towards that right even at the end when when uh Kess restores their warp drive and throws them 10,000 light years closer to home they, there's no Borg ship coming over the horizon. No, that would have been that would actually cr- created some real drama and tension. Yeah, in the situation, I mean, it's coming to respond to this Seven's distress call. I know. As as soon as Seven and as soon as they tell us at least a partial distress distress call went out, that's okay. That's Chekhov's distress call. <laughs> yes. There yes. needs to be a ship come and investigate that distress call from the Borg, and there's not. Right. Right. And there's there's one point where they talk about how they pick up some you know remnants of a you know transwarp conduit you know whatever particles float out there in space after the one of those things close but it, literally it's like it's over on the edge of sensor range you know yeah it's nowhere close I'm not sure why they made that decision to not create that sense of of a of a of imminent threat well Voyager writing <laughs> Voyager writing yeah right. so they need seven of nine to help clear out the Borg tech and she's reluctant because she feels like she's been kidnapped, which she's essentially has been in and she doesn't want to leave the collective. And I'm thinking, what are the ethics here of forcing her to leave the collective? You know, in one sense, she's kind of almost like we would say the equivalent of a trafficked person, someone who was mm-hmm. kidnapped and forced into this life that was against her will at the time, even though she kind of wants to be there now. And Janeway's like, no, this is for your own good, and I'm going to force this on you. What are the ethics of this? Is Janeway in the right? The bottom line, yeah. (laughs) Okay. She she had, uh, so Annika Hansen, and we learn Seven's 
human name for the first time in this episode. She was mm-hmm. Anna Hansen. She was mm-hmm. assimilated when 20 years ago when she was a little girl because her parents were irresponsible space hippies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had been investigating the Borg even and, and with this naive space hippie, oh, they're not a threat. Let's just investigate them, you know, idea. Right. They're like, like um, mountain gorillas <laughs> that we can go yeah. examine. Yeah. Yeah. So she was assimilated against her will at a young age. And it doesn't matter what age she was. Anyone who is assimilated against their will and then has their brain reprogrammed forcibly to where they mm-hmm. want to be part of the collective is not making a personal decision at that point. Right. Mm. They are under this alien reprogramming influence. And the responsible ethical thing to do would be to remove them from that mm-hmm. and restore them to a state of rationality. Now, if once they're back in a state of rationality, and Seven raises this possibility, she still chooses and says, you know, I've experienced it both ways, and I think the Borg way is better. I want to go back. Mm-hmm. Well, then the ethical thing to do would be, I mean, at least arguably, to let her go back. Mm-hmm. Now, the counter-argument would be, you're going to be a threat. I'm not going to let you go back. It's, right. like, yeah. it's like saying, I want to go back to being a terrorist right. mm-hmm. or right. something. Yeah. But in terms of choosing her belief system and and so forth, all things being equal, if she, in a state of rationality, makes that decision, mm-hmm. then it's a bad choice, but she's a free agent making a free choice at that point. Right. She was not a free agent at this point. Mm. And so it's ethical to restore her to a state of free agency and allowing her to make that decision at that juncture. Right. Well, and it's, you mentioned earlier that it was, you know, very much, you know, invoking, you know, drug use and, and overdosing on drugs and things like that. And, uh, that's very much, in my opinion, the analogy of, you know, Janeway's basically doing an intervention mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you, you're on drugs. You're so drugged out that you can't even think straight. You, all you want is the next hit. I'm going to help you get out of that. Right. Yeah. You're going to fight me and you're going to hate this and it's going to be painful, but we're going to get you through it and we'll get you cleaned up. And the analogy here would be someone who was like kidnapped and then forced onto drugs. Yeah, exactly. Against their will. If they then, if you get them cleaned up and then they decide to go back to drugs, that's their decision. Yeah. But since they were kidnapped and forced into an addiction, right? it's legitimate to say, okay, we're going to get you off of this so you can then make rational choices on your own. Right, right which, kinda, which fits the uh, space hippie theme of her parents. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I mean, or if someone were um, indoctrinated into a fringe religious group with extreme practices, and then the, the, this is a deprogramming. No, that's unethical. Right. That's because because in that case, people went in and either made their own decision to join the group. Oh, okay. The fact it's fringe has nothing to do with anything. Right. Okay. That's just a popularity meter. Yeah. If they if they made their decision or they made the decision to raise their children mm-hmm. in a religious group of whatever nature, you can't rip them out of the group and propagandize them to the contrary. Right. You can persuade them, but right. not by ripping them out, not by kidnapping them and, and, and propagandizing them. You have to treat them as a human being with respect and pursue ordinary means of persuasion and conversion. Right. Yeah, that's that's where the uh, the analogy of human trafficking and the forced drug addiction 
is yeah. more yeah. accurate. The, yeah. the fact that Annika and her parents were forcibly assimilated is key to the moral calculus. Mm-hmm. If Annika had been a responsible adult and chose to join the Borg Collective, you could not do this to her. What if her parents had chosen to join the Borg Collective? That's more problematic. It would have mm-hmm. been an interesting story, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. I yeah. think it would, be, it would have been interesting if they'd done that. Well, no. in any case, Janeway's the only one who's convinced that she can save Seven. Everyone mm-hmm. else is skeptical. And she assumes the authority. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying Catherine Janeway has a messiah complex? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> She's just being the captain of the ship, the mother of the ship, you know. Right, right. No other, no other Starfleet captain would do this. Uh, but but uh, they all sort of do, do this at one point yeah. or another of some, of some form. But she does assume the authority to make decisions for Seven, essentially declaring a non-compass mentis. Like, she's not in her right mind, yeah. therefore I'm, I'm doing this. I, it's interesting how with uh, Cass becoming a Jedi Master, or whatever it is she's becoming, <laughs> she's, yeah. you know, she's got telekinetic powers and she can you know, mess with people's heads. Um, ironically, without Cass's telekinetic powers developing, there was a moment where, where Seven was dying from this implant going wrong in her brain. The doctor wasn't able to do anything, and so Seven might not have survived. And so it's interesting how they've set it up in the plot that Kess's evolution is key to Seven's survival and and her Mm -hmm. replacing her, essentially, on the show. That was interesting. And Janeway points this out in a line of dialogue where she's talking to Tuvok, and she says, I've got got an Okampan who wants to be something more and a Borg who's afraid of being something less. Here's mm-hmm. to Vulcan stability. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. that, was, that yeah. was a good line. It, the other interesting aspect of this episode is it sort of is a presages what we see in the Picard season one, where Hugh, the former Borg, is mm-hmm. taking Borg drones and deborging them, <laughs> whatever you yeah. want to call it. And and it's essentially this the doctor here is sort of pioneering the techniques that are eventually used in that show. And, and mm-hmm. so it's, I find it kind of interesting to think about how the, the connection between Seven's mm-hmm. transformation and what goes on there and Seven's involvement in that series. Yeah, and, and Janeway says that she's met Borg who have left the collective, so it doesn't say you know, explicitly that she met Hugh or one of, the, one of his followers, but, but she says she has met Borg Former Borg drones do you who think, have left. Do you think she meant Picard? Because that's what I was kind of thinking that she meant. Oh, Picard. possible. I thought, and I thought she was referring because they do run across a colony of ex Borg. Yeah, and before mm. the Borg children. Oh, I forgot about and, that. And, yeah, and 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 um, I thought that's what she was referring to. Oh, right. I forgot about that episode because oh, my, my first thought was Hugh. It's like, well, uh. it's possible. But they, you, you you think they would have said that if that's what they were implying? I didn't remember that episode was before this, but yeah, certainly it had to have been before this because there was no seven in that episode. That would have made yeah. a whole. That made it would have made that episode very different. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. That's how true. memorable that episode was. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard to keep them all straight in 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 your mind. Which when what occurs when, or at least it is for me. Um, there is an interesting moment. So after seven tries to send the distress signal and she's put in the break, and it. And Jamie goes down to talk to her, and she could sort of confronts Janeway like, "Oh, th- so this is what freedom is? You stick me in jail?" <laughs> it's like, "Well, duh! You just assaulted Harry and tried to signal the Borg to come and and assimilate us. Of course, we're going to put you in the brig. Let, that this freedom is not unlimited. Let's put it that way." Uh, yeah. I thought that was interesting, and uh, and but 
Seven has it, it kind of throws this into Janeway's face. Like you would deny us the choice as you deny us now. Like she's this is the line. You've imprisoned us in the name of humanity, yet you will not grant us your most cherished human right to choose your own fate. You are hypocritical, manipulative. We do not want to be what you are. I mean, there's a that's a she's really Yeah, and there's nice acting from Jerry Ryan in yeah. this oh, in, yeah. in, in this episode. I think Jerry Ryan is underrated. She's not just a pretty face in in, mm-hmm. in Voyager. I think she does a great job in, and in Picard. Um, mm-hmm. And and this really shows it because this episode. Oh yeah, she she's yeah. got significant range as an actress. Like in that later episode where she has the doctor, the doctor's mental patterns in her, and show, so she's aping Robert Picardo's <laughs> mannerisms and That's stuff. That's right. Oh, yeah. that was great. Yeah, <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I, this interaction between Janeway and Seven in the brig is is kind of fascinating. I think this was per- perhaps some of the better writing in this episode, at least from my point of view. Yeah. Um, oh, much but, better than the cast stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm. The cast stuff was just a bunch of scenes of her. There were paint-by-number scenes of her powers increasing and becoming more dangerous and and coupled with lots of goodbye scenes. For right. her and the characters that she has been close to. So Neelix, Tuvok, the Doctor, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it, it feels like that was almost pasted on. Like, again, because they, that was supposed to happen in episode five as opposed to this second episode of this season. Maybe that's why it felt a little pasted on. Uh, yeah, this. it's also there because it, all those scenes, it's because her decision to leave the ship is last minute. She can't actually say goodbye to any of these characters in these scenes. So they're goodbye scenes without goodbyes. Right. Which right. helps make them feel artificial. It's like, why are we having this scene? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh in fact, there's that the, the the essentially the goodbye scene for her and Neelix in the in the mess hall, and she starts to go transparent and glow again. And she's mm-hmm. kneeling like she's in a religious ecstasy. Did you did you catch that? Yeah, yeah. It oh, was yes. a very interesting religious imagery that Anson Williams, the director, decided to go for in that. I felt like it was clearly a religious ecstasy. Well, and the, I mean, it's it's clear they're they're making her like she's ascending to another plane. You know that she's, yeah. you know, which is kind of a recurring theme, including in Lower Decks, where they got the koala. Why is he smiling? <laughs> yes, <he's, laughs> that was a great episode. The ascension. <laughs> uh, I want to know. So, is she the first Ocompan this has ever happened to? Does her people have legends of this happening? Is this why is why is why is this happening to her all of a sudden? Other than she needs to leave the show, what's the in-universe right. reason for this? Well, they, they, they've talked. They talk about quite kind of throughout her run about how her species has latent telepathic abilities and psychic abilities, and all these things. And so do Vulcans, I, yeah, Betazoids. And but I think what they're trying. I mean, obviously, it was let's get her off the series as quickly as possible. But it was. They they tried to make it like that this was a natural evolution. At least I I, th- I feel like they tried to make it was a natural evolution of their abilities and failed. Yeah, you know that the, they were trying to make it as this is this is where the compens really could go, and this is why they have such a short life here on here in the universe because they go to a different plane by the end of their life. But they never again they never set that up well. They never explained it well. Did, they just kind of like that's it. I was if, under the impression that the caretaker was limiting them, and with the caretaker gone, their the limitations were gone as well. Maybe, but that might have been my if head. This, if this happened to every Ocompan, we should have heard about this from day one. Yeah, right. and so I think this the fact we happen implies this is 
rare. Yeah. But it shouldn't come out of completely out of the blue. Yeah. And girl's psychic powers go crazy one day and she ascends to another plane is, you know, it, it, they should at least have buffered it with like, oh, this thing that's happening to me, I, I have an idea what this might be. My people has have right. legends about this. Mm-hmm. That's it's true. rare, but it's not unknown. Right. And it does come that, out of left field. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's probably what got cut out of on the, the writer's writer's room when they decided to move up from the fifth episode to this episode. Yeah. You know, how to explain why this works. It's just like, we just got to make it work. You're so We're, generous to the writers. <laughs> you know, somebody's got to be once in a while. I mean, they're, they're not all completely clueless, mostly, yeah. but not completely. Okay. Well, speaking of the writers, I have a, a, yet another one of the things. To add to our list of weird Voyager writing quirks, so there's the some kind of everything is some kind yep. of. Uh, there's the the unlimited supplies of torpedoes and shuttles. Here's another one. Whenever anyone calls the bridge, they never say what's happening. They just say to the captain, "You better come to sick bay. You better yeah. come to the bridge." Yeah. But no one says why. Just why? Okay, I'm kind of busy. What's going even, on? Even yeah. if we have a situation, would be an improvement. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Emer- emergency in the in sick bay. Better get down here. Yes, it's just it's such artificial drama that they're making here. Like you better come to sick bay, and then we cut perhaps to a commercial or just cut to a different scene. It's like I just had mm-hmm. to laugh when I when I realized they kept doing it in this episode. Um, let's see the uh, oh another little correct. This is a little thing I saw that the captain notes that seven of nine or Annika was born on star date two five four. Seven nine. So, oh. so seven of nine was born on seven nine. It's the, I don't know. It was dumb. Yeah, um, <laughs> that, was, that was the writers being too clever by half. Yes. Yeah, so, but back to the the more important things. Maybe, maybe, maybe wait, wait. Maybe there's 24th century numerologists who would look at your birthday and tell you, "Oh, you're going to be assimilated by the Borg, and your name will be <laughs> seven of nine. Yeah, there you go. That's what it will be. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, talking talk about the date, um, it, it said in here that she was assimilated 20 years before this. Okay. So she was actually assimilated before Q6, yes. the Enterprise D. Yeah. So the Borg knew about humans before the humans knew about Borg. Right. By, yeah, by years. Yes. Yeah. In fact, the, the uh, episode that comes up where we see the assimilation of her family, it, it makes that clear that her family were the first to yeah. encounter the Borg. Yeah. Yeah, it was about a, a decade yeah. before the Enterprise D met them. One of the things we're talking about, like, fa- you know, uh, being able to make a choice for our fate, both Kess and Seven tell Janeway that their fate should be their decision. And it's interesting, Janeway acquiesces to Kess very quickly. Like, I, I'm, I'm not going to get in your way. Sure, you, whatever you decide to do, that's up to you. But not to Seven. So I, I thought that difference is interesting. I mean, it's explainable. She has an established relationship yeah. with Cass. She knows who she is. She she understands. She knows her. Cass is a rational agent. Yes, right. And Seven is not. But I I felt that was an interesting uh, duology that they set up in this episode between two people and you know making choices about their fate and and why one gets to and the other one doesn't. Well, it also helps that Cass starts blowing up bulkheads before they finally throw her off the ship. So <laughs> yeah. I mean that helps a lot. Right. Um. My last little note here on this episode that I had was that uh, at one point, Chakotay tells the captain that they have crews working around the clock on the outside of the hull, removing the Borg technology. And I was thinking to myself at the end, 
I hope there was no one was out there doing that when you passed <laughs> through the ship 10, year, 10 light years or 10,000 light years uh, forward because they're probably floating around back there still. Well, you know, if they if they had their shields up, maybe there was a no-slip zone around the ship and they got thrown with them. <laughs> That's what yeah. Or they probably had their magnet boots on, you know. Yes, although they get shook pretty good. But yeah, yeah, there's, <laughs> that, was, uh, <laughs> I, that was one funny thing I, I thought. All right. So um, any other notes from, uh, from you, Father Corey? Uh, it, it was interesting that they did in the writing kind of show, and I'm assuming it's in the writing. I'm assuming it's not slips in production <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. But that seven several times will switch from the first person plural to the first person singular. She'll mm. sometimes will say I versus we. Yeah. And it, again, I, I took it. And I felt like this was an intentional choice of saying she's starting to, you know, just as her body is starting to reassert its humanity her language is starting to reassert her individuality. Right. And this was a conscious choice that they made, you know, more and more of these slips, quote unquote, as it went along. Now, again, that could be like, you know, said, Jimmy, you know, giving too much credit to the writers and to the producers, but you know, it it did (laughs) kind of seem like that. Jimmy. So early on in this episode, as Kess's powers are starting to manifest telekinetically, she does this meditation exercise with Tuvok where he, he's got this lamp that's been lit and he's having her control the flame by amplifying it and diminishing it. And then she sees to see a realm below the subatomic and he points out there is nothing below the subatomic. And she says, yeah, there, but there is, and I'm seeing it. And this is kind of a little, eh, this is a little ambiguous. I would in, interpret her statement to mean below the known subatomic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's easily possible. I mean, there, you know, there are theories now about, well, hey, if you look at the standard model, there are some interesting patterns in the known particles that suggest there may be more fundamental ones underneath that we just haven't found yet. And the same thing could happen in the 24th century. But Tuvok is like, there's nothing below that. And, well, that would be true on the pedantic level of, well, if it's even smaller than the, I mean, how can it, how can it, if we're talking about small, we've mm-hmm. got the atomic level, and then there's everything under that. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and so you're just talking about a new realm of the subatomic, but it they they don't really it it's kind of it's a little bit wonky in the writing mm-hmm. but the interesting thing here to me is vulcans have a telekinesis exercise <laughs> i mean <laughs> up, up up to now vulcans have had limited telepathic ability you know not mm. as much as betazoids but more than humans and humans do have some in star trek they established that in the second pilot but here we have evidence of vulcans having a telekinesis training exercise, and I'm not aware of other references to Vulcan telekinesis. Wasn't there an episode early on where Kess uh, was doing this same exercise and ends up burning Tuvok in the process? I want to say that, that was I like remember. very, very, I it, like first yeah. season, like yeah. very early, early on, like third or fourth episode, where she did the same exercise, and because she wasn't controlling her psychic abilities yet, she actually turned and started burning him and he his face all melts up and everything you know yeah. bad special effects but yeah he, he does say in this you've never shown this level of control before mm-hmm. <laughs> understatement from a vulcan understatement yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah I, the, I, yeah go ahead so i thought that was interesting also there's a moment where janeway 
has got seven in the brig and is going to come in to show her, her show her pictures of herself before she was assimilated. And seven is like, if you come in here, I'm going to kill you. Mm. And and Janeway like goes in anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, right. lady, this other lady just said she's going to kill you. You know, yeah. it, I'm not. I, I'm not sure about this decision. <laughs> Then it's it was a little ironic. So at the end, as explodey things are exploding in the corridor for no good reason other than Kess. I mean, why are those even there? Right. Kess's powers are going crazy, and they're trying to get her down to the shuttle bay. And they run into Tuvok in the hallway, and Tuvok does an emergency mind meld to try to stabilize her for just a minute. And I I thought, ooh, it's ironic that he's merging his mind here with Cass while Seven is back down in sickbay or down in the brig, totally jonesing for a mind meld. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I thought, you know, this is a, something they should have explored, just like they've just like they've had Tuvok helping Cass with her psychic powers. They should have not just could have, but should have had Tuvok help Seven with her assimilation uh, separation anxiety mm-hmm. they they should have they should have had him or or if they had a non-psychotic betazoid crew member you know <laughs> go down to seven periodically and say okay look we can be together mentally for a little bit you know to just to reassure you and and you know help you feel close to other people who are not drones this would have been a logical part of seven's uh re repatriation therapy and they didn't mm-hmm. follow up on that mm, that's yep. a good point yeah there is at least one other vulcan on board the the one we saw in the lower decks episode uh the, the lower decks of, of voyager mm-hmm. not the tv good shepherd yes i think that's what it was um yeah so th- there is at least that one other vulcan mm-hmm. um yeah all right. So, um, anything else on that one, guys? Uh, if not, uh, nope. I'll, I'm going to move on to our listener feedback. Uh, we got an email from Robert. Yay! Who commented on our episode 100. So it goes back a bit uh, a ways, oh. in which we talked about the book Picard: Last Best Hope. Uh, that was a a sort of prequel origin story for the Picard series. And Robert said, "I love the book for Picard. I would love to have them make it as a season for Picard." Also, from past episodes regarding Enterprise, I love the fact that the crew is afraid to use the transporter, an original series McCoy was afraid of the transporter, and Next Gen Season 2 Dr. Pulaski was afraid of the transporter, and Lieutenant Barkley. So that still shows that there's lots of transporter fear among people. And that, I, I do kind of like that idea that not everyone is on board with all this future technology that's out there, including the, the, the Death Scrambler machine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Robert, for that email. Uh, I. I kind of doubt they would make a, a season out of Picard with a, about Last Best Hope, just because the economics of that aren't what they would need mm-hmm. to be. But yeah, yeah, I do like how it's like you know today. Not everybody is a fan of flying. Right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, Jenny sent an email about our discussion on Star Trek Six in episode one sixty one. She says, uh, "So my feedback is that you've made me feel really, really old." since you found it necessary to have to actually give an explanation of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall, in East Germany, etc. <laughs> Join the club, Jenny. So, well, however, <laughs> I, I think in that it's helpful. I mean, it, it was helpful to me, and I lived through those events, to just remember them and make them explicit. Yeah. 
Yes. Right. Because, you know, there were things in in watching Star Trek VI that it initially didn't strike me. And then it's like, oh, wait, this is an echo of this thing that really did happen. Mm-hmm. And right. I wanted to make sure that the that the uh, the listeners, whether they did live through them or didn't, you know, had those events ready to mind for interpreting right. the movie. I'm sorry I missed that that episode because that's that's one of my, of course, one of the favorite yeah. movies. It's one of the great movies, and it's it does have a lot of those themes of the reconciliation of the East and the West and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So, Jenny does point out that the, we made one error uh, where we included Yugoslavia as a member of the Warsaw Pact, but even back in the day, most people made that mistake. It was definitely in the Soviet orbit. Yes, but it was, but it, it was. never actually joined the Warsaw Pact, which mm. made it very in, interesting and very different from all of the other uh, countries in Eastern Europe that were dominated by the Soviet That's Union. That's right. That's so, right. Very interesting. Uh, I, I didn't know that myself. Luis sent an email about the same uh, discussion on Star Trek Six. I know Jimmy compared the potential reaction to Savic being a traitor to Jordy being revealed as one, but I think a better and sadly real example was the reaction to the first Mission Impossible movie where Jimmy Phelps, the beloved leader of the IMF team from the TV series, was made into the traitor. Sure, I watched that movie in its sequels, but I'll never forgive the jerk who turned one of my favorite TV characters into the bad guy for no good reason at all. (laughs) So I'm sympathetic here. I was a fan of Mission Impossible before the first movie came out, and Mm -hmm. I do not blame Robert Graves at all for refusing to appear in that movie because they made his character a traitor. Right, And they did so right at the beginning of the movie. And this is a betrayal of years that he'd spent as, you know, the, he, the, the, the central figure of the Mission Impossible team suddenly being revealed as a traitor at the beginning of the first movie. That's just cheap and a betrayal. And, and yeah. I didn't like that at all. I don't think that it would be the closest analogy with Savik, though, because Savik was a relatively recently introduced character and she wasn't Jim Kirk. Right. This would be turning Jim Phelps into a traitor would be more like turning Jim Kirk into a traitor right. because he was the lead character on the show. Yes. And so, it, so it, you know, like Jim Kirk is the lead character on Star Trek. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, yeah. The, what they did to, to Phelps with the Mission Impossible movie was a cheap stunt. I mean, just that's all it is. It's a cheap stunt. Um, yeah. I mean, he was still played masterfully by John Voight, but yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, that's all of our feedback this week. We love getting your feedback, and we'd love to get more from you. Uh, you can you can give us feedback at Star Trek at sqpn.com. I do want to take a moment now to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Lori M., Kevin B., Joseph D., Jeffrey B., and Ben in Autumn their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of star trek and all the shows at starquest you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give and we'd also like to thank victor lambs who edits the show for us every week so that is it from us what did you think of voyager episode the gift you can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia, or send an email to, as I said, trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Enterprise episode, Shuttle Pod 1. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Tom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on Starquest, and remember... 
I took the liberty of stimulating your hair follicles. A vicarious experience for me, as you might imagine. 